I think it's fair to say that everybody who has done commentary on this show is very fond of horror anthologies. The uh, limited commitment of the horror anthology means that there's potential, potential, for great talents to swoop in and do strong, interesting work that occasionally falls outside of what they typically do. However, the short story is a very unforgiving mistress, and anthologies tend to be hit or miss no matter how diverse your taste might be. That being said, we grew up on Tales from the Crypt, Twilight Zone, Are You the Afraid of the Dark, a whole bunch of other ones, and we, we always want these things to work out, and we're willing to give just about anything a chance. So that's why we are talking about Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, which I think we all really enjoy it while not thinking that it's a particularly great film. More on that in a bit. My name is Ryan, this is a Real Deep Dive. All right, joining me for this one is my sister Cheryl, this is her suggestion and then we have our brother sylvan who has somehow never seen this before yeah i thought that there might have been a chance that i'd caught like pieces of it um on tv or something but nope entirely new to me oh yeah this is definitely the sort of thing that was on basic cable throughout the entirety of the 90s it's rather impressive that you never saw a snatch of it yeah if i did none of it stayed in my head and i imagine that if i had seen especially the part with the cat that would that would have been like a favorite of mine (laughs) as a kid Cheryl, in particular, is very fond of Tales from the Dark Side, not just this film, but the series in general. Oh, yeah. No, the intro to the TV show stole my heart, like, immediately. Let's uh, get the plot recap out of the way, because this is an anthology. Uh, I, I don't want to linger too long on the vignettes, but all right, this one has a more elaborate framing device than most of these. We don't oh, just... excellent framing device. <laughs> yeah, it isn't just like Rod Serling walking out and giving us a pithy little monologue at the beginning of the end, or the crypt keeper throwing puns in our face there's more to it than that you see the movie opens with betty an affluent suburban housewife and modern day witch we notice because of the broomstick and she's planning a sumptuous dinner party the main dish is to be timmy a young paper boy <laughs> whom she has captured and chained up in her pantry to stall her from stuffing and roasting him the boy starts telling her horror stories from a book that she gave him called tales from the dark side so it's kind of like the arabian nights but with cannibalism <laughs> Arabian Nights meets Hansel and Gretel. Now, the first story we get is called Lot 249. In this one, a grad student, Edward Bellingham, has been cheated by two classmates, Susan and Lee, who framed him for theft in order to ruin his chances of winning a scholarship for which they were also competing. As revenge, Bellingham reanimates a mummy and uses it to murder them both. Susan's brother, Andy, kidnaps Bellingham, forcing him to summon the mummy, then destroys it and burns its remains and what he believes to be the reanimation parchment. Uh, you see, the mummy won't wake up unless you translate it into English perfectly. Uh, it has to be apples to apples, which, you know, that makes sense. Egyptian hieroglyphs. Uh, see our uh, episode on the mummy with Cat for more details on that. <laughs> <laughs> he considers killing Bellingham, but in the end cannot bring himself to do so for reasons. Poor survival instinct. <laughs> we already know that Bellingham is willing to, you know, purchase a, a, a mummy and use it to murder people. So I would think it would be self-preservation that once you're aware that he does shit like that, that you take him out. And he's got up to the point where he has tied him to a chair, spread newspapers underneath him and poured lighter fluid on his testicles. 
I am going to say something uh, in his defense. Anytime there's been danger coming towards him in this episode, he's like Magood, Mr. Magood, his way away from it. <laughs> so, like, I mean, if I had that kind of a record, I wouldn't be worried. Oh, yeah, there's lots of moments where he's like about to go down the stairs with the mummies there and he changes his mind and turns around like just before it's too late. Once Bellingham is loose, he brings Susan and Lee back from the dead, having switched the reanimation parchment with a similar-looking one. Uh, there's apparently some kind of dirty limerick, and dispatches them to Andy's dorm, where they greet the terrified Andy by saying that Bellingham sends his regards, and it looks like they're about to like pull his brains out of his skull and stuff flowers up his stomach, which is how they were dispatched by the mummy. Yeah, the mummy sticks to what he knows. Knows. <laughs> uh... Right, little Timmy, having noticed that he has placated Betty with that story, has decided to do another one called The Cat from Hell. Woo! This one focuses on Drogon, a wealthy wheelchair-bound old man who brings in a hitman named Halston for a bizarre hire. He is to kill a black cat, which Drogon believes is murderously evil. Drogon explains, even though he claims he doesn't need to, that there are three other occupants of his house before the cat arrived. His sister Amanda, her friend Carolyn, and the family butler Richard Gage. Drogon then says that one by one the cat killed the other three, and that he is next. You see, Drogon's pharmaceutical company killed about 5,000 cats while testing a new drug, and he is convinced that this black cat is here to exact cosmic revenge. Halston does not believe the story, but is more than willing to eliminate the cats, and Strogan is offering $100,000 in order to do so. But the next day, when Drogon returns to his house to see if the deed is done, he finds that the cat has killed Halston by climbing down his throat. The cat emerges from the hitman's corpse and then jumps at Drogon, giving him a fatal heart attack. Because everybody knows that the method that cats use most often to hunt is they climb inside the mouth of their prey and just sleep there. To be fair, ghost cat. Talking with the director about the film, George A. Romero remarks that uh, the cat climbing into and then out of the mouth scene reminded him of directing Monkey Shines, where the producers um... pushed him to include this creepy, memorable, emerging from body parts scene in order to get people talking about the movie. Yeah, like the moment you said that, I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the third and final segment, which, you know, little Timmy uh, mentions to Betty because she wants to hear a love story is called Lover's Vow. This one centers on a struggling artist named Preston. He lives in a studio with a skylight through which a large stone gargoyle on the neighboring building peers down on him and his work table. Preston's agent calls, asking to meet with him at a bar a few blocks away. And there, the agent tells him that his work is unpopular and not selling, and that he is officially dumping him as a client. Ejected, Preston drinks heavily and becomes severely intoxicated. The bar owner who is also a friend, offers to walk him home. Along the way, Preston stops to piss in the back alley. While there, his friend sees and then shoots at a flying monster, but it brutally severs his hand and then decapitates him. Preston witnesses the horrific scene and, terrified, tries to run away, but the creature corners him. It decides to spare Preston's life under the condition that he swears to never reveal what he saw or describe the monster's appearance to anyone. The beast then scratches Preston's chest, saying, cross your heart, and then vanishes. Preston is traumatized and confused, but bound by his oath, can say nothing about what happened. Immediately afterwards, he ducks into another alley where he um, sees a young lady passing by. He just 
grabs her and pulls her against the wall because he thinks the monster's after her, but she doesn't know that. Oh, it becomes an adorable story they share later on. <laughs> he assures the woman that she will not be harmed. Her name turns out to be Carola, and she says that she came lost while looking to meet friends and was searching for a taxi. Preston somehow convinces her to enter his apartment to call a taxi from there. While there, Carola sees the monster-inflicted wound on Preston's chest, and during an erotic back teen application sequence, <laughs> they make love. At least, that's what's implied from the extreme close-ups of their high-contrast body parts just rubbing and sighing against each other. Preston's life immediately improves after this evening. His art career becomes wildly successful, mostly thanks to Carola's very convenient connections to those in the galleries. The two eventually marry and have two children. However, Preston is tormented by the memories of the monster, and his vow of silence weighs heavily upon him. On the 10th anniversary of his and Carola's first meeting, as well as his friend's death, Preston breaks down and tells her about the monster. Carola appears very uncomfortable by Preston's revelation, and then emits a heartbroken wail, saying that he had promised to never tell anyone, and reveals herself as the creature. With Preston's vow broken, Carola can no longer remain human and begins transforming back into the gargoyle. Their children, now awake and also turned into gargoyles, emerge from their bedrooms. She then wraps her wings around Preston. They proclaim their love for each other one more time. But with the vow broken, Carola is reluctantly forced to kill him by biting his neck. And then she flies away with her children. The final scene shows the three gargoyles now turned to stone and sitting upon the building ledge staring down at the city with sorrowful expressions. We then cut back to uh, Betty and Timmy. Timmy says that while that lover's vow story is pretty cool, the best story is for last. You see, this one is about this little paper boy named Timmy that was kidnapped by a witch. But when the witch was going to throw him in the oven and bake him for like, oh, 17 minutes a pound, I think she said. <laughs> see, Timmy threw out these marbles and then she slips upon the marbles and then falls upon her stabby kitchen implements. Timmy then pushes her into the oven and runs away uh, while she screams, although he's steals her cookies on the way out the door. And he narrates this while it's happening, but I guess Betty is just bound by fairy tale witch lore and cannot do anything to save herself. She is a creature of premeditated forces beyond her ken, I suppose. Or she's just dumb. I mean, she had the upper hand, like, the whole time. She's like, yeah, okay, that's nice. I see this as an exercise in determinism, perhaps not intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Timmy bites into a cookie and says, don't you love happy endings? And that's the movie. Excellent writing device. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, development of this. After the success of Creepshow in 1982, Laurel Entertainment began pursuing a television series structured like Alfred Hitchcock Presents for the Twilight Zone. Tales from the Crypt, which was a direct inspiration for Creepshow, would be developed into a TV show not too long after this. After some squabbling with rights holders, the project was retitled Tales from the Dark Side yeah! and debuted in syndication in 1983. It was helmed by Creepshow's director, George A. Romero. Uh, the show was a very big success, for four seasons and 89 episodes. I own it. We're a shock. I think I bought you a complete series box set. You did, and it's wonderful, and I made you watch every episode with me. Following the show's conclusion, a film entered development with most of the crew from Creepshow 1 and 2 involved. Special effects technician Tom Savini refers to the movie as the real Creepshow 3, because there's another one. 
Deborah Harry, Christian Slater, William Hickey, and Steve Buscemi were cast because producers liked their performances in episodes of Tales from the Dark Side. Lot 249 was adapted from a gothic horror short story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle by the film's principal screenwriter, Michael McDowell. Uh, McDowell also wrote Lover's Vow, but that one is based on a Yuki Ona fable found in 1901's Kaidan stories of, and studies of strange things. Oh, that makes so much sense. That's such a Japanese ending. It has a very folktale structure, too. If you're curious, a more historically accurate version of that story was adapted for the 1965 Kaidan film, which I recommend heavily and is probably going to be an episode of this show at some point or another. Cat from Hell was adapted from a Stephen King story by <laughs> Romero. Uh, it was planned for inclusion in Creepshow 2, but was cut for budgetary reasons. The segments were shot outside of their running order. Unlike in Creepshow, no attempt was made to make them tonally coherent or consistent. Romero expressed that the anthology format should encourage creators to play around and experiment, and each of the vignettes have her own little aesthetic touches. Law 249 has a lot of wipes for their transitions. I think Cat from Hell borrows quite heavily from early silent era horror. There are flashbacks done with, like, that they filtered the lens to make it look like they, you know, they dyed the frames, like, back in the day. Not only that, but the bits were, you know, you're seeing things from the cat's perspective. Or I dumb loved that. Yeah. Those were shot with a handheld with a what looked like a fisheye lens and then flares in the corners, just like it was a aging silent film. Speaking and, of the cat's perspective, while we were watching that segment, one of Charles' cats was sitting on Ryan's lap and watching like that part with rapt focus. And he's a baby. It's going to leave such a bad impression. Cheryl thinks the cat was taking notes. <laughs> So, hey, Cheryl, don't kill 5,000 cats in medical experiments. I mean, I'll try, but no promises. <laughs> And uh, Lover's Vow has a very film noir vibe to it, not only uh, is there high contrast in the sex scenes, but just in every other scene as well. Whenever anybody's outside, there's just billowing fog in the background, just more steam coming out of that vent than is humanly possible, but, you know, it's it looks cool. It had, like, a very Terminator, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles kind of urban vibe, where you're just like, I would not be surprised if I saw Shredder poking by. Speaking of Lover's Vow, director John Harrison claims that the the studio tried to pressure him to drop Ray Don Chong from the film since they were nervous about depicting an interracial romance. George Romero begged him to name names, but he wouldn't. I mean, I could have justified, like, dumping her just because she wasn't a very good actress. <laughs> But the racial component sucks, yeah. Harrison pushed to have a more elaborate framing device for the vignettes. He wasn't crazy about just having, like, a skeleton man going, hee hee hee, here is a good dead time story for you. <laughs> he wanted to do something more than that. And so he came up with the whole witch is trying to eat this kid, so he's going to Arabian Nights his way out of it. And it was delightful. The music for this, they had different composers for each segment. Chaz Jankel did Cat from Hell. Pat Reagan and Jim Manzik did Lot 249. Donald Rubenstein did the wraparound sequences. And Harrison himself uh, did the music for Lover's Vow. Before he became a director in his own right, he scored Day of the Dead and Creepshow for Romero while serving as his assistant director on both films. I don't think the score causes too much attention to itself. It's very 80s horror movie, even though it came out in 1990. Like, pretty minimal, probably because they didn't have much money to spend. Uh, none of the guys involved were professional composers in a film vein. Most of them were just like dudes from bands that Romero was friends with. It fills its role. 
But uh, let's go into the cast. First, we have Deborah Harry as Betty the Witch. <laughs> it was interesting to try to, to see her being like, you know, respectably dowdy suburban looking because they wanted her to be very, I, I, I feel like, overly like plain and unassuming. And like, la-di-da, by the way, which meets children. You know, she's pointedly like saying hi to all her neighbors as she's driving back from the grocery store. I mean, she's very casual to Timmy about what she's going to do to him. Yeah, just like another day in the neighborhood. Like, like he asked her what evisceration means, and yeah, she, she doesn't pull any punches. I do think her casual tossed-off delivery is pretty charming. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, this is she the- nails the role, it's just a you know, the, the frumpy look is not what you associate her with. Yeah, she's a glamorously beautiful woman who somehow didn't become famous until after she turned 30, which is not a Hollywood thing. But uh, this is the second Deborah Harry movie we're talking about. You're looking at me like I should know the answer to this. Yes, we did rock and roll at your insistence. Oh, my gosh, you are right! <laughs> oh, I can't have, I've locked that movie out of my brain. <laughs> and Matthew... God, the lips are haunting me now. <laughs> Yeah, Matthew Lawrence played Timmy. He sure did. <laughs> Who do I know that little kid from? Uh, he did show up with a bunch of other kid stuff afterwards. Uh, he was in the 90s Babysitter's Club show. I don't know who he played because Babysitter's Club wasn't my thing. I wanted to punch him. He seemed like an annoying younger brother. And he's like adorable and charming in this movie. So I'm like, what do I know him from? <laughs> Isn't it like a family of actors, too? I don't know if he's related to other famous Lawrences. I probably should have looked into that. Okay, anyways, we have very young Steve Buscemi as Edward. Yay! Still looking like very old Steve Buscemi, because Steve Buscemi was never actually young. (laughs) He just came out that way. Yeah, he's like 23 in this movie, and you could have convinced me he was 15 years older. He's my kitty's namesake. You named your cat after Steve Buscemi, yes. I did! Steve Buscemi is an excellent actor. I I love everything he's in. it was perfectly convincingly creepy in this. He does seem like the type of person who would buy a haunted mummy and use it for revenge purposes. Yeah, he's like, I can make so much money off this mummy, but no, I'm going to cut it open and take this scroll and use it to choke out this jock who done me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> And then we have Julianne Moore as Susan, the woman who tries to use her wiles in order to manipulate Edward. This is the very first thing that Julianne Moore was ever in. I mean, good good for her. It's a a good first step. She's playing a pretty two-dimensional stock role. I uh, would not have guessed that she would have become a very respected actress after this, but she did. Good for her somewhere. Yeah. Then we have Christian Slater as Andy. <laughs> Not a Slater fan, are we? I cannot handle false Nicholson. He's pipped to me. I like that fairy, thank you very much, and they are separate entities in my mind. I did not like Heather's. He even looked like they drew Pip to look like him. No, he looks like the fairy, and that's all. <laughs> I mean, I never really quite got that everyone considers Christian Slater to be, like, watered-down, half-assed, Gen X, 90s Jack Nicholson. I I don't hear it in his voice. I do, and it makes me want to punch him so hard in the face all the time. Have you seen Heathers? No. That's why you don't want to punch him, Ryan. (laughs) I have not seen Heathers, but I have seen Fern Gully, so I like him. He's funny on Curb Your Enthusiasm. No! (laughs) Okay. Okay, Ryan's not allowed to find him funny. Got it. Christian Slater is cancelled. The end. Just cancelled because you don't like his voice. (laughs) I can't 
myself and I hate it so he was buoyant in two years of vampire and he was terrible at that too. And I, I like him in this when he has Steve Buscemi tied to the chair and he's like, killing me is not going to bring him back. And he's like, well, letting you live is not going to bring him back either, buddy. Oh, he was so good in that part. <laughs> Up until the part where he didn't tell Steve Buscemi. <laughs> That was a stupid choice, and that's when I stopped rooting for him as a character. I'm like, okay, you deserve the fact that you're very clearly about to die. Yeah, Robert Sedgwick played uh, Lee, the dumb jock idiot that uh, Susan just kind of has wrapped around her finger and is just using him in a proxy war against Edward for some reason. He did fine. Yeah, you thought he was like a dude in Stranger Things, and he was like, wow, the years were not kind to him. (laughs) Also, he's like a full foot taller than that actor, so... (laughs) So I, that's not him. No, it's not him, and I, I was right to be concerned. <laughs> All right, for Cat from Hell, uh, we have William Hickey as Drogon, and he's a that guy. Sylvan was like, oh, him! Yeah, I, I, my, I primarily associate him with an episode of The Adventures of Pete and Pete, so I'm always fond of him whenever he shows up in things, always playing creepy old man. Yeah, he's Grandpa Wrigley in that. Although um, we did cover another film that he appeared in, The Puppet Master, because he is the Puppet Master. He is! I, uh, it's a recurring joke whenever anyone's like, oh, it's been too long. I'm like, Andre, too long! That's the Puppet Master's name. Yeah, he's playing a decrepit old man who has evil secrets. That's basically what he does in everything. He has a very distinctive voice. I, I primarily think of him as the mad scientist from Nightmare Before Christmas because just that voice. Yeah, but that's one of those situations where that character just is for me, even though it's a very distinctive voice. I'm like, yeah, but coming out of a puppet. Like Christian Slayer's voice is coming out of a fairy. <laughs> exactly, but mine makes sense. They're separate. <laughs> And then we have uh, David Johansson as Halston. You know, not only is we have Deborah Harry in this, but we have David Johansson. So, you know, two punk singers. And sort of a callback to his punk roots, they make him wear some lipstick. Punk? I don't know. Oh, he was the lead singer of the New York Dolls. I know the name of that band. Uh, yeah, they're an early glam rock band that is seen as like a foundational influence on punk as it came along. You've seen Velvet Goldmine, right? Yeah. Personality Crisis, that's one of theirs. Oh, Every role in this is a stock role, but yeah, him just running around screaming that he's going to get this fucking cat. and He doesn't strike me as someone who's very good at their hitman job, and certainly not up to the task of killing a ghost cat. He goes about it all wrong. Once he's under the impression that this actually is a ghost cat, his strategy is to casually play pool until the cat stabs him in the balls, and then he's going to take a sniper rifle and shoot it. That's not really a sniper rifle. It's a looks like it's an automatic pistol with a laser sight on it. It looks like somebody that doesn't understand guns drew a gun for the first time. I am making a crack at myself here, not at you, I promise. Yeah, I don't know guns. That might be a real gun. There are such things as, you know, handguns with laser sights on them. I, I just, I want to throw in, his methods would have worked neither on ghosts nor on cat, therefore definitely not on a combination ghost-cat. <laughs> <laughs> For Lover's Vow, we have James Lamar as Preston. Uh, he's had the yeah. longest, yeah, he's had the longest career out of anyone on here. He's, not st- yeah, he's still doing stuff, like, in 2020. I mean, like, I enjoyed this story a lot, but I thought the acting in it was the worst of the segments. Like, mediocre job with a pretty interesting story. I kind of always thought that, like, I don't know, for me, I always look at him and, like, immediately at first, I'm like, oh, it's Patrick. Oh, it's not Patrick. Every time. And, like, that 
match that actor for me. Because he is handsome, but not as handsome as Patrick Swayze. Like, someone ordered Patrick Swayze from Wish. <laughs> there we go. He's off-brand Swayze. You know what? I'm sure he's a perfectly lovely gentleman, and we're just talking on him. And not for... <laughs> and, and, and for just totally superficial reasons. It's like, you're not as good-looking as Patrick Swayze. Neither am I. <laughs> I know, but he, like, looks, he looks a lot like him. Like, they could be in the same lineup. <laughs> they have a similar voice. I bet he's got a dance background. Yeah, Sylvan doesn't think he's convincing as a uh, frustrated artist who is angry that his popsicle stick sculptures are not taking the New York art world by storm. <laughs> I know there's a lot of, like, cheesy lines throughout this, but, like, Deborah Harry sells her stock character, right? The guy playing Lee sells his stock character. These guys sound like they're reading off of cue cards. Also, we both know that there's only one popsicle stick that can take New York by storm. <laughs> stick stickly. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about Popsicle Pete. None of you are safe. No. Stick stickly. Okay. Write to me. Stick stickly. P.O. Box 963. New York City. New York State. 10108. That lives in my brain rent free. <laughs> Just happens sometimes. <laughs> See, because we're talking about a horror movie, I thought we were going to talk about Popsicle Pete. But nope, nope, other direction. <laughs> All right, uh, Ray Don Chong as Carola. She had a weirdly long career, especially since she only got it from nepotism. She is Tommy Chong's daughter. And yeah. Jensen Manis. Uh, uh, Chong. Oh! Yeah, you can see the resemblance now. Uh, kind of. She's very pretty. She is much prettier than her dad. I don't know who her mom is, but I imagine she's beautiful. Probably like one of those, like, Bob Dylan kind of situations where like you look at his kid and you're like what and then you see the mom you're like oh yes Jacob Dylan is very attractive he's beautiful <laughs> I've only seen Chong in this and in Commando where uh I mean she is very believably confused at Arnold Schwarzenegger kidnapping her from the mall and then shooting everyone all right. <laughs> <laughs> so she just gets kidnapped and everything, maybe, I guess. Anyways, reception for this. It got very tepid reviews. Nobody liked it. Oh, go figure. I mean, it's horror. horror doesn't usually, yeah. It's a 1990 horror movie. As we talk about with like, just about every 80s cult horror movie, it gets awful reviews. I'm surprised when I read a positive one. Most of the criticisms were it being too comic booky, whatever the fuck that means. And the other one being the uh, direction being a little over-stylized. Because we are in the post-New Hollywood era where naturalism is key. So anybody who is doing something with a degree of artifice was being put down even if it was a trashy horror movie. It was a fairly modest box office success. It had a budget of $3.5 Most of that was spent on the gargoyle monster, Romero wanted that thing to look badass. As it did. <laughs> it got $16.3 in returns and became a staple of uh, late-night uh, cable television broadcasting, which I imagine is where most of its eventual profitability came in. In terms of the film's legacy, it's multifarious. While this was in development, producer on Tales from the Dark Side, Richard P. Rubenstein, got the ball rolling on a similar horror anthology show called Monsters. That ran for three seasons from 1988 to 1991 on the Sci-Fi Channel, which is doing very well with Tales from the Dark Side reruns. Got about 72 episodes. Respectable show. You don't seem to like it as much as Tales from the Dark Side, but you watched it fairly religiously. Monsters? Yeah. Yeah, Give me a little bit of a context clue for this one. The, the intro was the family going like, hey, it's our favorite show, Monsters. Oh, I do remember that. Okay, okay. <laughs> 
got me. You got me. Because, like, in my head, I'm, like, going back to, like, Outer Limits, but, like, the remake Outer Limits. And I'm like, no, Ryan, I don't remember this. (laughs) A direct sequel to this movie was announced with uh, McDowell and Romero writing a script with cartoonist Gahan Wilson. This was to include adaptations of Stephen King's short stories Pinball and Rainy Season. Pinball was also planned for Creepshow 2, but dropped. Uh, they were also planning to do Robert Block's uh, short story, Almost Human, but the film never got past the development stage. Later on, Joe Hill tried to revive Tales from the Dark Side as a CW show in 2013. It was never picked up. He pitched it to Hulu. They weren't interested either. Joe Hill had written three scripts for the show that were never used, and he decided to turn them into a Tales from the Dark Side comic book miniseries in 2016. It was published by IDW and illustrated by Gabriel Rodriguez, who did all the artwork for Lock and Key. Oh, okay. That was cute. I like Lock and Key. The Tales from the Dark Side comic isn't, like, anything groundbreaking. It won't blow your mind, but it's worth reading, especially if you like Hill. And I like Hill. As I mentioned earlier, Creepshow 3 came out in 2006, with nobody involved in the prior installments on board in any capacity. It was also cranked out for very little money, very quickly, by a studio that was basically a money laundering scheme, it seems. It has the rare (laughs) distinction of being one of only a handful of movies to have a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, something like that. While Tales from the Dark Side never got a revival, Creepshow did get a TV series on the streaming service Shudder. Fuck you, Shudder! It began in 2019 and just got renewed for a third season. It uses writers, directors, producers, and actors from both Creepshow and Tales from the Dark Side alongside new talent. It is much better received than Creepshow 3. I really want Shudder so bad. We have it for the computer, but it doesn't work on, like, any of the other um, devices we have. And I'm not going to sit in front of Pete's speakerless computer to watch it. So, like, like... It, they're trying to get me to buy it for my TV because, like, they keep putting on everything that I want to watch. I'm not paying for it twice. Cancel it on your computer and buy it again. I find the Creepshow TV series to be kind of hit or miss, but the good episodes are really good. <sighs> I'm so tempted. I like the one I watched with you. Oh, the one with... The Mr. Rogers thing. Oh, no, it was Bob Ross. It was Bob Ross fighting the Necronomicon. Yeah. Very good. And there was was an evil Sherry Lewis. Evil Sherry Lewis. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that brings us to the themes. I want to talk a bit more about anthologies. These were fairly common in the early days of television. It was largely a holdover from radio shows. If you listen to any old radio shows from the 20s and 30s, they very much favored the anthology format, although they are much less common today. These are almost always driven by genre, and you can see why. Uh, horror, for example, doesn't need big-name actors, expensive special effects, or a famous director to be successful. Is one of the only institutions where the star is horror itself. People will go see horror movies even if they have no idea about anybody who's in them because they just like spooky shit. I mean, we do have a couple of modern anthologies that have taken off. Like, people seem to like Black Mirror. I haven't seen a single episode. Some of them are really, really good, and some of them are horrible. Don't watch the pig one. Just skip it. Sounds like anthologies in a nutshell. (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, serialized and episodic storytelling are far more common in uh, this day and age, which makes sense because if you're looking to find a story that'll just send you out on a gigantic high, that's more of a film thing. Television is meant to be something of a Skinner box. It's meant to like placate you, but only to the point to keep you coming back week after week for a new fix forever. That isn't as easy to do when the cast changes every episode. And the other thing I wanted to bring up was was people starting their careers in anthologies because to reiterate what I said beforehand, the limited commitment means that, you know, lots of well-known character actors can maybe show up and be the main guy for once, like, you know, Frisbee lying about his flying saucers. But then you have, you know, people who are just starting out, really talented, but they haven't caught a break yet. And the anthology format has been a route for many people to ascend to the stage. The first thing that comes to my mind is baby Robert Redford being the teenage Grim Reaper in that Twilight Zone episode. Oh, that's such a good one. <laughs> yeah, I, I love watching the Twilight Zone and I just kind of sit there with IMDb open the whole time being like, what do I know you from? You're, you're definitely much older when I recognize your face. Tales from the Dark Side kept that tradition going, in addition to a bunch of the actors I mentioned who reprised their roles here after uh, getting early breaks in here. Julianne Moore's first role, that's a big deal. She's been a lot of great things afterwards. This is an oddly ignominious beginning for her. It's like George Clooney being in Return of the Killer Tomatoes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that's another reason why I really like the anthologies, because you just have a moment where you're like, hey, let's take a chance on the new kid. I always like to see, I feel like I can get lost in them. Like, you can immediately just relax. It's not, like, high pressure. Because they're so short, you just, you're not going to get that invested that your heart's going to get broken. It's uh, less commitment on the audience's side, either. I think that might be why the Twilight Zone appeals for me, and I can just, like, binge 30 episodes in a row. <laughs> Whereas if something is serialized, it's like, I don't know, that sounds like an investment. Right? You're like, I can already feel my heartbreaking bastards. <laughs> Sign me up. Alright, well, that's everything in my notes. Is, uh, is there anything we'd like to mention about Tales from the Dark Side before we wrap things up? Oh, see, now this would have been, like, a really good part for me to just quote the theme from it. Like, the intro, but I can't remember it at all. Try to stay in the daylight. <laughs> I remember that bit. I think I'm paraphrasing, but that's close enough. It's like there's a world of light that we live in, and then there's another side. The dark side. Something like that. <laughs> uh, Sylvan, anything from you? I liked the cat. <laughs> We're all shocked. All right. Yeah, I didn't think there was going to be too much about this one. This is a fairly minor film, but we had fun with it. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time and uh, try to stay in the daylight.